Embassy Jerusalem. And it's my privilege today to host a very special webinar. The title of our webinar, as you've seen, is Ukraine and Purim. We're seeing today around the world the concern over Russia's invasion of the nation of the Ukraine. We're seeing the news reports of the refugee situation, the devastation, the bombing, the death. And yet at the same time here in Jerusalem, and I just walked home from our office, you're seeing adults in the streets with costumes and, and very similar, although rarely as uh, evil as in America, the Halloween costumes. Many people in all kinds of uh, unique dress, adults and children. And that has to do with Purim. And so we, we ask ourselves what's happening in the world, what's happening in Israel, and we want to try to share that with you today. Um, first, I'm going to introduce a fellow vice president, Nicole Yoder, who's our vice president for Aid and Aliyah. Welcome, Nicole. And can you tell us uh, for the next 10 minutes or so, what is ICEJ doing reference the situation in Ukraine? Hi, Barry. It's lovely to be here with you and with all of the rest of you who are on this call. Wow, what a time we are living in. Who could have imagined a few weeks ago that we would be sitting here uh, looking at the situation that we're looking at and uh, seeing the numbers I think when we spoke a few weeks ago uh, in conversations here in Jerusalem with the Jewish agency and with other people and we're thinking of contingency plans in case this or that happened, we wouldn't have imagined then um, the great, great numbers of people who are, uh, are fleeing for their lives, uh, leaving with virtually nothing. Uh, we're just uh, looking today at the situation um, in shelters coming out of the Ukraine, Jewish people waiting to make Aliyah. There's about 5,000 right now. The first 2,000 have already arrived, but before the week is over, that number will grow to 3,000. The Christian Embassy has been so blessed and privileged to have the generous uh, donations of our Christian friends around the world that have allowed us to bring nearly 500 of these uh, people to help them on their way home to Israel. A very, very small, uh, or specialist, I should say, a very special subsection of this group of, uh, of uh, immigrants that we've been able to assist are Holocaust survivors uh, with a very special um, operation that we're doing together with our friends at Yad Ezer Lechaver, who uh, we also have a, a home for Holocaust survivors with them here in Haifa, in Israel. We're sending in people on the ground to answer calls of distress from Holocaust survivors, taking them sometimes one by one from uh, homes where they're living maybe on their own and unable to get out on their own or in some circumstances where there were some family members but they were unable to leave. And just this week, uh, a whole family of seven with uh, three elderly people, two Holocaust survivors in their 90s were taken from an area that nobody thought we would be able to get them out of. And they were able to come with their children and grandchildren. Uh, one of the 
one of the children is a quite well-known actor in the area. And so this is a, a story that um, people who know his uh, name in that region will, will find interesting. And so here we have three generations taken out. Um, and if you could see the little video clips of them being, you know, carefully assisted into vans one by one, maybe rolling a little suitcase and nothing more. And what a privilege for us to be a part of, of helping, uh, you know, these survivors so often as they age, this is when the memories and the trauma kind of resurfaces uh, for them. But to actually relive a similar situation again at this age is so tragic and, and horrible. And so if we can help in any way to remove them from this terrible situation, it is a huge, huge, huge honor for us. And we're so grateful for our friends around the world who are enabling us to offer this assistance. Uh, in addition, um, like I said, uh, maybe I think last week we commented on how there had been 16,000 calls uh, asking for help. It's up at 27,000 calls now. Uh, the numbers are rising. We see the people coming to the border and out into these uh, uh, kind of short-term stays in hotels before they immigrate to Israel. If in the beginning, the people coming through were... Um, you know, hadn't seen as much of the, the tragedy that, that's unfolded in the last few weeks. We now see people coming with greater uh, needs, greater trauma, some medical needs, some um, psychological need for counsel and assistance to help them deal with just what they've experienced in the uh, previous weeks. So the situation is shifting in that sense. Um, Israel, uh, government officials, are estimating that we could see as many as 100,000 uh, immigrants coming in the coming months. And that is causing a shift here on the ground in Israel in terms of how to handle this influx of people. Um, more and more hotel rooms and, uh, and uh, yeah, hostels are being uh, rented out for, to meet this influx. And so on the ground here, we're also preparing how can we offer first assistance here in Israel from the Christian embassy? Is it going to be uh, providing you know, some first items because many are coming with nothing? I just came right now from purchasing like a whole couple carloads of items that we're gonna put into welcome baskets, just first needs, whether it's hygienic things, whether it's towels and things, whether it's gonna be uh, assistance with clothing, um, all of these things that we're working on and, and uh, preparing for right now. Um, in addition, I believe we shared with you last week that we had a truck going from Finland on the other side into Warsaw, Poland. They arrived, they delivered the items, and guess what? More are needed already. So we're now in conversations for continuing that operation and looking to see how we can bring more items Again, it's all the general uh, basic items of general medications, baby food, diapers, clothing, uh, that were um, sleeping bags, warm clothing items. Uh, these are all the kinds of things that are needed and that we're uh, preparing to assist with. I just, uh, there was a heartbreaking story of a young mother, 23 years old, who fled on foot with a two month old baby and a 14 year old brother hitchhiking, getting buses where they could. They, it took them a week to get from the area around Kiev to the border. 
And this whole time, this dear, dear uh, woman had to carry this two-month baby because she didn't have a stroller. She didn't have anything to hold the baby on and nowhere for a bed to sleep in the whole time, this whole terrible week. She just grabbed a couple changes of clothes, a few diapers and, and fled. So this is the kind of tragedy that uh, is being dealt with and that we're providing assistance for. These are the kind of people that are coming to the border who desperately need our help. And um, it's just such an honor and such a privilege for us to, uh, to be a part of uh, providing for them and easing the way before them. So um, yeah, those are some of, the, uh, some of the things that we're working on right now. And um, yeah, we just uh, continue to pray that God puts into our hands to do more. Amen. Thank you for sharing that, uh, Nicole. Um, but let me give a follow-up question. For example, I've had several of our staff come to say, um, can I have tomorrow off? I'm going to go help. Can I go help? And so for me to not steal your thunder, talk about how they're helping and what's happening a little bit here in Israel. Thank you, Barry. That's true. I had forgotten to mention that, you know, because of the huge, uh, need realizing that a broader um you know just a broader scope of assistance is going to be required it's no longer just the normal channels of of a person making aliyah this has to be a bigger uh, broader effort and so the municipalities are being pulled in general uh, population just people who want to volunteer are being asked to volunteer whether it's bringing some of the items I just mentioned to the municipalities, but it's also, there's a need for translation. Some of our staff have, uh, have already been, uh, we've recruited them to go and uh, do translation for activities for children, for helping with people who need to fill out forms, for uh, just a variety of just translating to help them when they're landing and integrating. Um, there's the, the hotlines, which it's true. We have in our uh, uh, center in Haifa, we have a, a hotline for Holocaust survivors that is being repurposed as well to take additional calls because of the huge volume of calls that I mentioned. So we have people on the ground in our center there who are now taking additional calls that can't be answered swiftly enough through the uh, Jewish agency hotlines. Um, so different, uh, as things arise here on the ground, we're sending people out. We're using this, our team that are Russian and Ukrainian speaking. Um, and we're, we're seeing how can we practically, you know, package up things, translate, do things for kids, just whatever comes into our hand. And, you know, and those things change all the time. So it's very exciting to be a part of it and to see the great response of the people from around the country, you know, Hey, how can I pitch in? How can I do my part? Amen. Amen. Well, Nicole, thank you for that. And, uh, you know, leading our team and the operations in our office and, and other things here in Israel, for me, it's very rewarding and, and a sense of, uh, I don't know, God's blessing when our staff come up and say, hey, I need to take off time to go do this, to serve, to, to be a witness of the love of Christ um, to my people. We have staff who are from Ukraine, staff who are from Belarus, staff who are from Russia. Um, and so the Lord has put together an amazing team here. 
Do pray for us from around the world. Pray that the Lord give us his wisdom, that he provides the resources. If you've made donations, thank you, because this challenge for Israel as a nation, for the body of Christ around the world, does not look like it's ending anytime soon. So, Nicole, thank you for that. And now let's transition to the next segment of this webinar. And you all are in for a blessing. One of my favorite teachers on the, the biblical meaning and relevance of uh, Jewish feasts is my colleague, Dr. Moamir Kalas, who is our vice president for international affairs and is responsible for supporting and communicating with our offices and representatives around the world. So, Moamir, um, now it looks like you're in Finland with all of that wood behind you. So, tell us where you're at and welcome. Please tell us about Forum. Thank you, Barry, and uh, rather warm greetings from uh, a place near Beersheba in the south of Israel, in the Negev, uh, where we spend part of the Purim holiday because it is a holiday in Israel. And uh, that's a, a fitting start for my teaching on uh, the holiday. Um, and uh, I hope just that the uh, level of uh, connection, the signal will be strong enough to carry the message. And uh, thank you for this introduction. And I'm aware that at this time, when uh, we all are watching what is going on in Ukraine, we are praying, we're trying to help as much as we can, my subject might seem to be rather distant now but um, let's just uh, take a look at what we can learn from this biblical holiday and also try to see what the lord might be telling us through this because uh, it is after all part of the biblical calendar and we have seen on many occasions that the lord keeps to his own calendar in a way and that the message uh, as every biblical message is always relevant uh, for us today. So what I want to do is I would uh, like to share a few uh, hints uh, from the Jewish tradition, how the rabbis read and understand the uh, story of Purim. Uh, as we all know, it is uh, recorded in uh, the book of Esther, or as the Jews say, the uh, scroll of Esther. And uh, I will not go uh, in detail through the whole story, but let me just uh, mention that uh, the plot is set in the Persian Empire in Persia, today Iran, uh, around the 5th century BC. And the king's name was Ahasuerus. Now, historians agree that Ahasuerus reigned after several generations after the famous Persian king Cyrus. That was the one who had allowed Jews to return from Persia uh, to their homeland and rebuild the temple. Now, this is an important note because the timeline, as we shall see, will play an important role in an, our understanding of the message of Purim. So here we have the King Ahasuerus, then his deputy, uh, Haman, uh, who was a descendant of Amalek, Amalekites, uh, a perennial enemy to the Jewish people. Uh, he came up with a plan to kill all the Jews in Persia. And the Jews uh, were afraid, they were praying, they were fasting, and 
it came out that uh, a certain Jew by the name of Mordechai foiled the plan. And besides Mordechai, uh, there was his cousin Esther, who had become the queen of Persia. And uh, it is a marvelous story of deliverance. And one aspect is particularly strong here, namely that the save, salvation of the Jews, the deliverance of the Jews came very suddenly. There was a sudden change of fortune, a complete reversal. The enemy... Okay, it looks like we have lost the signal from uh, Dr. Mormir Kallis. Hopefully, we can get a signal back in short order. I wish I had taken better notes when he gave a similar study to our staff just a few days ago. Some of the um, interesting thoughts, as he was just talking about, that the deliverance came very quickly to the Jews in Persia is once the decision had taken place, it happened in a matter of a few days. And we're looking at the reality of the situation in Ukraine and wishing, praying, that the Lord would provide some quick deliverance. Welcome back, Moamir. Okay, so where did you uh, lose me? I'm sorry you for that. went silent after you said that there was a quick deliverance. Okay, so, well, that's, that's the first important point. Uh, the deliverance came very quickly, and the book of Esther comments that uh, what happened was that the sorrow turns to joy, the mourning turned to holiday. And uh, this is the reason why the uh, festival, the holiday of Purim, was instituted. It is right there in the Bible, in the book of Esther. And uh, because it's, uh, after all, so joyful, this also is the reason for the joyful nature of the holiday of Purim, which might look like... Uh, uh, maybe Halloween or in the Catholic countries, the carnival with costumes and, and joy. So that is uh, uh, similar in outward appearance, but the reason for it is different. The reason is that the Lord intervened in a sovereign way and caused a very quick reversal, change of fortune. Now in Hebrew, the, first, the phrase that it turned for them from sorrow to joy, etc. In Hebrew, it says nahafohu. Hafoch means opposite, upside down. So uh, we can really translate it as that everything was turned upside down. A great turn of events from massacre to deliverance, from defeat to victory, from sorrow to joy. Now, here's a question. This is an Old Testament story, but uh, can we find something similar in the New Testament, in the, the stories that we read in the Gospels, that something turned suddenly from its very opposite? 
Something turned dramatically from defeat to victory, from sorrow to joy. Any idea? Well, of course, the very core of the gospel, when Jesus died on the cross, everything seemed to be lost. And so thought the disciples. But then on the third day, he rose from the dead. The biggest reversal in the history of mankind. The greatest turn of events. And uh, just by the way, Paul says that this very fact of Jesus' resurrection is the cornerstone of our faith. If there were no resurrection, our faith would be in vain. So this is how we can see how God can turn things around completely. Not just a little bit, but completely from death to life. This is how our God has chosen to act. Now, with this idea of something being upside down, uh, this is a very positive example from uh, death to life, from persecution to deliverance. But sometimes in our lives, we can be in a situation when something is just not right. Something even seems to be upside down, but in a wrong way. And uh, when we look at the story of Esther carefully, of what was going on in Persia and the Jewish people there at that time, we can find, and this is the insight of the rabbis, we can find that something was not quite right. Something was actually opposite. Let me look at the one particular verse from chapter 2 in Esther, verse 5. Esther 2, 5. In Shushan the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Yair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Now, we wouldn't probably notice at first glance, but the rabbis here explain that here is quite a sting in that verse. Why? Let's first look at Mordechai. He is called here a certain Jew. In Hebrew, the phrase is Ish Yehudi, a Jewish man, literally. Now, the, uh, this is the only other place where that phrase is mentioned in the whole Bible in the whole Tanakh and the other place in Zechariah 8.23. And uh, I will just read it in a moment, but uh, to give you the context, Zechariah describes a situation when a devout Jew lives in the city of Jerusalem, in the rebuilt, restored Israel. And from the context, we understand that the spiritual atmosphere in Israel at that time is such that Israel is beaming like a light to the nations, and many nations are enticed to come up to Jerusalem to seek the God of Israel. Well, let me read verses 22 and 23 from Zechariah chapter 8. At that time, many peoples and strong nations come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, of this Ishehudi, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Just try to imagine such a setting, such a situation. Uh, to me, it echoes the words of Paul in Romans 11, where he explains that all Israel will be saved. And when he says what happens after the natural branches are grafted back into their own, he says that 
their acceptance will be life from the dead. And that can be understood, uh, first of all, it's a great reversal from life, from death to life. And it can be understood as a revival, as such a revival, such a strong spiritual movement like there has never been before in the history of mankind. And one which will have a repercussions for the nations because the nations will be drawn to Israel, drawn to Jerusalem, and will be drawn to seek and find the face of the Lord. So this is what Ishiahudi really means. Now, you can see the irony here, because in the book of Esther, this Ishiahudi is in a completely different situation. It's a complete opposite. Again, it's upside down. First of all, Mordechai does not live in Jerusalem and in the land of Israel at all. Second, there is no revival. He himself may be a God-fearing man. He's probably was, but he certainly was not in a position to lead other nations to God. He was not free. He was living in a foreign country and he was under persecution. People, if they were going to grasp the sleeve of Mordechai, probably they wanted to kill him rather than seek the Lord. So this is a completely upside down situation. And there's more in that same sentence. If we look at the word translated in as citadel, uh, in Hebrew, it is habira. Now, habira in modern Hebrew is used for the capital city. For instance, Jerusalem is habira shel Israel, the capital city of the nation of Israel. Uh, and in the Bible, uh, that is actually this uh, verse in First Chronicles. Uh, it's uh, First Chronicles chapter twenty-nine, verses eighteen and nineteen. And this is a passage where King David prays for his son Solomon. And he is asking the Lord to give Solomon a loyal heart to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes, to do all these things, and to build Habira, to build the temple. So uh, this uh, biblical reference of Habira is clearly uh, focusing on not only Jerusalem as the capital, but the, the very center of that city, which is the temple with the presence of the Lord. Again, the contrast, the complete reversal, not for uh, the better in the book of Esther, is that Habira is here denoting a foreign pagan capital of Shushan, the capital where the pagan king Ahasuerus lived and ruled from. So that is certainly a contrast to the temple of Jerusalem and the presence of the Lord. And my final point here in the same verse uh, from Esther 2.5 is the very name of Mordechai, because that is a Babylonian name, and uh, it's probably the most provocative word in the entire book of Esther, because it is derived from a pagan god, a Babylonian deity called Marduk. I believe that before the exile in Babylon, Jews would not have the idea of naming their children after pagan gods. But here we have Mordechai who uh, performs a completely positive role in the whole book of Esther. But something just between the lines tells the story of the spiritual state of the Jewish people who were in that uh, time living in Persia. So, the rabbis say that there are so many hymns that 
our attention needs to be drawn to uh, the, the point which God wants to make. And again, this uh, upside down situation, this nahafoch is very strongly present. The Ishehudi does not live in a revival in Israel. He lives in exile, which is always understood as a sign of divine judgment for the Jewish people. He has a pagan name, and the word used for the temple in Jerusalem is used to describe the palace of pagan So what is wrong? Why this, and you see this message is rather subtle, but this is how God often speaks to us. He wants to, uh, to show us, to, to lead us, to hint. And if we ask the Holy Spirit, we might get some revelation. Now, in uh, the Jewish tradition, the answer is very clear. Uh, the rabbis uh, have concluded that in the whole or behind the whole uh, book of Esther, there is a prophetic message. And uh, there is one other very interesting aspect, namely that the book of Esther is the only book in the Bible where the name of God is not mentioned even once. It's completely missing from the whole book. We, this is a story about God's deliverance. It's uh, quite clear that God was uh, at work, but his name is missing. And here comes another play on words, because the name Esther, of the queen, uh, which is again a Babylonian name, uh, sounds similar to a Hebrew word. And uh, the word is uh, istir, or lastir, an infinitive, and that simply means to hide. And the lesson of Purim is said to be this, the hand of God is hidden. God does uh, influence the events. He does cause the ultimate salvation, but his hand is uh, hidden and his face is hidden. Is it a good thing or not a good thing when God is hiding? What do you think? Well. We can find some hints at, in the Bible again, and uh, we need to go to the fifth book of Moses, the Deuteronomy chapter 31, where, which is part of the Shirad Ha'azinu, the, the song that God commanded Moses to write for the sake of future generations, so that they might take uh, some lessons from that particular passage, from that song. And uh, this is how it goes. Deuteronomy 31, verses 17 and 18. That describes a passage when God will be angry at his people. My anger shall be aroused against them in that day. I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them. And many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us. And I will surely hide my face in that day. In Hebrew, Esther Astir Panai, I will surely hide my face because of all the evil which they have done, in that they have turned other And if we contrast this understanding with the, the context of Purim, we can see the picture emerging. God is hiding his face because of sins of his people. And we can see this in Jewish history, not once. They went into exile twice. They had to leave their own land that God promised to them because of their iniquity. 
and in exile. They never flourished. They were persecuted. They suffered. They lived as minorities scattered all around the world. And many even doubted if God is still with them. Just think of the Holocaust. And this is precisely why this uh, song, the Shirat HaAzinu, is in the Torah. God knew it beforehand, and he told Moses to write it down so as to teach the future generations and not only to give them understanding of why these certain things are happening, but also to give them hope. Because the point is that uh, the, the punishment is not the end. Uh, it is throughout the Bible, and it is also explicitly said in this uh, Song of Moses that finally, the time will come when God will have compassion on them again. In the conclusion of the song, Deuteronomy 32, 43, uh, Moses says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and for his people. And just by the way, we live in that time. We live in the time when God is uh, showing, revealing his face to his people again. That is seen in the restoration of the land of Israel. And uh, interestingly also, uh, Moses says that this process of God's revealing his face to his people again will have some influence on the Gentiles again. They are to rejoice. Remember that 10 Gentiles will try to grasp the, the cloak of a Jewish man. So the Gentiles are watching and the Lord is speaking to them as well. Now, that whole is to say that God is in control no matter what we see and what we perceive. We might not recognize it, but God's hand is still protecting the Jewish people and performing everything so that his plan is uh, completed. And uh, the Jewish people looking at this uh, situation, they are uh, told to remember the days of old, to consider the years of the past, to learn a lesson from the past. And if there is a people on the face of the earth that have learned from the past, I think it, we can say it about the Jewish people, because the culture of remembrance, of commemoration is very strong in this land. And uh, so uh, they know that even if evil comes, even if God is uh, hiding his face, we know that the Lord will intervene one day. And uh, I've mentioned that already. Jewish people suffered many times, many nations terribly, but actually no one succeeded ever in wiping the Jewish people off the map. Not Pharaoh, not Amalek when uh, they attacked the Jewish people in the desert, not Haman the Amalekite in the Persian realm, not the Inquisition during the Middle Ages, not Hitler, and I would add not Iran and the Mullahs today. There were many, and in fact in the Haggadah it says, in every generation uh, raise up people want to kill the Jews, but they will never succeed because God's hand is at work. There might be a hidden hand in certain instances, but God is behind the events that ultimately will lead to salvation of the Jews. 
they will never be wiped off the map. Uh, there's an anecdote told about Napoleon, and he was uh, allegedly asking one of his advisors, can you give me a proof of God's existence? And the advisor said very succinctly, yes, sir, it is the Jews. Now, the very fact that they are still here is a mighty uh, argument for the existence of God. And when we come to Purim, this is a particularly strong uh, example of how God works in history. And uh, I, I'm not very much into uh, these uh, conspirations or, uh, uh, you know, things that uh, might be uh, somehow, uh, you know, theories about uh, things and pointing to the connection between certain events and the biblical prophecies, but it is a fact that several events occurred uh, in the history which coincided with this uh, date of Purim, and it is indeed hard not to see the hidden hand of God behind them. For instance, in the recent history, uh, Joseph Stalin got paralyzed on Purim in 1953 and uh, died four days later. We can say that God's hand struck him at the, on the day of Purim. And the result was that Jews were saved because he had been already planning pogroms against all the Jews in the Soviet Union. But Purim came and the Jews were delivered, just like in the time of Esther. Another example is the Gulf War, which many still remember in 1991, during which Saddam Hussein then the, the, the president of Iraq shot 39 missiles into Israel, even though Israel was not involved in the war at all. But he wanted to sway you know, the, the course of the war, so he uh, fired 39 Scud ballistic missiles to Israel, hoping to, uh, to change the war. And Israel did not retaliate. Now, that a uh, dreadful time for Israel ended on the 28th of February, 1991, which happened to be the day of Purim. So again, it was a time of great anxiety. Uh, at that time, a gas mask had been distributed to Israeli citizens because they were fearing a chemical attack. And now a sudden reversal. God turned it around and on Purim, the war ended. And uh, looking at Ukraine, I'm really praying that God would turn around the situation. Uh, I'm not sure if it happens today, but this is certainly a time to remember that God is indeed sovereign in everything he does and that his hand, even, which, even if it uh, might uh, seem to be hidden, his, he is still at work very strongly. Now, uh, let's go back to the time of Mordechai and the story of Esther. If God was really angry at them at the time uh, and uh, was hiding his face, what was the reason? And here the timeline uh, becomes important. The Persian king Ahasuerus reigned decades after the predecessor Cyrus, who decreed that the Jews can go home and uh, rebuild uh, the land and the temple. Uh, and Cyrus did it in fulfillment of another prophecy because Jeremiah had prophesied that after 70 years of exile, God would bring them back to their land. This is exactly what 
Cyrus made possible. Now Cyrus went, then another king rose up, and then the king Ahasuerus. But the Jews, many of them, are still in Persia. We read in the book of Esther that they were scattered around 127 provinces. Uh, in other words, throughout the large Persian Empire. So it looks like there was a large number of them still. They had not returned with Nehemiah. And maybe they were saying to themselves, well, this is not the time to make Aliyah. Uh, they still preferred their own comfort to being obedient and building the God's kingdom. They were still in Persia several generations later. And uh, the rabbis, in fact, see this as the, the main reason for the catastrophe that uh, was almost happening to the Jewish people in Persia at that time. And, uh, you know, this uh, argument uh, uh, is being repeated again and again. And even today, there is a debate uh, to which we as Christians are, we are just watching it. I, I don't think we should intervene in that. But the fact is that there are Jews who live in the land of Israel, and they have an argument with those who have not made Aliyah yet, and they live comfortable lives, lives in the diaspora. And uh, the argument is that uh, one cannot be a complete Jew uh, outside of the land, because the Jewish people are destined to live in the land that God gave them. And uh, if the, the only reason with why they do not make Aliyah is simply their own comfort, their complacency, that can mean that a time can come, as it has come already many times in different nations, that they can be in grave danger. And uh, what we see today in Ukraine is, of course, a great tragedy. But looking at uh, from this uh, vantage point, I would say that the Lord might be telling something to the Jews who still stay in Ukraine and in Russia. And uh, it's, it's very significant that the state of Israel exists today because this is the only safe haven for a Jew from anywhere in the world. So this is uh, in, in the background of why God was hiding his face in the time of Esther. And uh, there's a final prophetic message which I've tried to, to explain now, which is again uh, connected to the phrase, uh, a certain Jew, Ish Yehudi. As I said already, this is only found in twice in the Bible, in Esther and in Prophet Zechariah, who uh, then describes how the 10 people from the nations are going to uh, look for one Jew, a certain Jew. Now, there is another connection between the time of Esther and the time about which uh, Prophet Zechariah is speaking, describing, because in uh, the previous chapter, Zechariah 7, the prophet receives a delegation from Persia. So again, we have this connection, Persia representing the foreign empire and uh, the land of Israel. Je Zechariah lived in Jerusalem, and uh, the people from Persia, Jewish people, who, again, after uh, the decree of Cyrus, they could have gone home. They preferred to stay in Persia. And they came back uh, to visit. And they were asking uh, this interesting question. It's, it's a religious question. Should we weep in the fifth month and fast as we have done for so many years? Now, uh, 
This was a question that goes back to a older tradition because this was the month when the Jews were weeping the destruction of the temple. Now, the temple at that time, the first temple destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, uh, gave rise to this tradition that on Tisha B'Av, the fifth month, the Jews were weeping and mourning. But now the temple is being rebuilt, the nation is being restored. So they came with this rather logical question. Should we still keep this uh, habit, this custom? And uh, I don't have the time to read through the whole chapters seven and eight of Zechariah, and I recommend you do it. Uh, but the, uh, the answer that the Lord gave through the prophet is not straightforward. And you will see that God uh, leads the people who were asking to a different direction. No, the Jews were preoccupied with their own customs. They were, we can say, mentally still living in the past. At the time when circumstances changed dramatically, the return of the Jewish people from exile into their own land was this dramatic change of events. But, you know, religious tradition sometimes has this tendency to stay and uh, people to stay in the past with, this, with the old paradigm. So even if the road to Jerusalem was open, they didn't see it. They didn't, they came visit. Well, it was nice to be, again, to see the walls of Jerusalem being erected, but it didn't occur to them that they can completely change uh, their religious life. And from God's answer through Zechariah in chapter seven and eight, it appears that God didn't like that attitude, actually. And uh, it, it seems like the Jews should have understood already what he is up to, what he's going, uh, going to do. And uh, I would say that this may also signal a message for our time, or, or any time for that matter, when we have dramatic changes. And uh, undoubtedly, we live at a time of dramatic changes. Uh, and um, this is a time when people tend to be immersed in the past customs, in the former way of life, in the former certainties, and uh, not really recognizing the signs of the times or not understanding what should we do, should we, what should we change? In, in a certain sense, uh, religious customs are very good for our psyche, for our peace, for peace of mind. But what if God wants us to change in one way or another. So what is the, uh, the answer that God is, uh, is, uh, is giving here? What is the most important thing that we should also have in mind when asking, what shall we do? What is this time about? God says first in Zechariah 7, 7, should you not have obeyed the words which the Lord proclaimed through the former prophets? when Jerusalem and the cities around it were inhabited and prosperous. So in other words, it's, it's very basic. You should just obey the word of the Lord. You go back to his word and you do what he says. This was the very reason for the exile, uh, for the, the punishment, the transgressions. They didn't obey. So he says, basically, obey. And um, I, we can say that at the time of crisis, at the time when everything seems to be in turmoil, God is telling us, go back to basics. And there are a few verses in that context which spell out what that means, actually. 
Zechariah 7, verse 9 and 10, uh, God is saying what is truly important in his eyes. Execute true justice. Show mercy and compassion, everyone to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. Justice, mercy, compassion. And uh, there's a similar message uh, in Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It's a, the similar context. So uh, um, an answer to the question of what shall we do in times of trouble, in times of turmoil, in times when everything is breaking apart, keep to the basics. Again and again, we hear the words like justice, truth, and peace, mercy and compassion, and humility of heart. And uh, in the context of Zechariah, uh, God makes uh, very clear that when he promises that he would bring back his people to the land and do them good, he will restore them, he expects something of them. He expects them to be doing just that, to repent, to change their behavior, to show justice, truth, and peace. Uh, Zechariah 8, uh, let me read from verse uh, 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, just as I determined to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I will not relent. So again in these days, and I believe we are living in these days. I am determined, says the Lord. I am determined to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. These are the things that you shall do. Speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. Let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor. And do not love a false oath. For all these are things that I hate, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth shall be joy and gladness and cheerful feast for the house of Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. So this is what God says. I will bring you back, but I will ex I expect you to do justice and repent. And this is the context where uh, the uh, ten people from the nations will grasp the uh, the cult of the uh, of the one Jew of the Ish Yahudi. This is what God is intending for His people. And uh, again, as Paul says in the Romans eleven, when that happens, when they are grafted back in, when they have repented, that will be like life from the dead, and that will have a uh, impact on all the nations. Now we can see that Purim serves as a precursor of these things because this is the time when mourning turns to joy in anticipation of the great revival. But we should always bear in mind that when God gives, does good even to us, he expects us to respond in our heart. And when it comes to Aliyah, and this is obviously a very strong uh, uh, current event that uh, God is doing, and we are helping, according to the prophets, 
it is good to know that the, in the rabbinic tradition, and most of what I was sharing is coming from rabbinic sources, they understand Aliyah as a process which has a deeper purpose. It's not only about Jew being, bringing Jews from all corners of the earth to the land of Israel, but God expects them to repent, speak the truth, and execute judgment and peace and do justice and mercy. And when that happens, this is the same thing as uh, when they cry out, Baruch HaBabashem Adonai. This is the same thing that is going to bring Messiah back finally. So we should remember that when we engage in Aliyah in helping the Jew go back, this is uh, part of a very deep and fundamental plan of God because he wants to make sure that everyone can see that he is God, his people first, and also the, the whole nations, which will look at that and see that the Lord is truly God. So that's the message of Purim, and I hope that it will be encouraging to you even today. Amir, thank you very much for that. Um, as I told to you, our guests, Earlier, uh, when I introduced you, um, I find you one of my favorite teachers on the biblical meaning of the holidays, aspects from the Jewish calendar. And again, thank you very much. However, as I listen to you, um, I do feel like there is a warning that I need to share with our guests. Um, and you shared very accurately and very truly that within the Jewish community, those in Israel, there is the debate. Is the disaster in Ukraine coming because of the Jews not having made Aliyah? And yet in Luke chapter 13, in the words of Jesus, I find a warning about attributing disaster to other people's sins. Uh, Luke 13, chapter 1, there were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whom Pilate had killed and mingled their blood with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than other Galileans because they suffered these things? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than the others who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And so while we may consider the, the truth that there may be some of God's judgment over the Jews who have not obeyed to make Aliyah, we as believers need to say, Lord, is there anything in my life that may also hinder me from walking in your blessings? And so just as, as somebody working in, in restoring Jewish-Christian relations for decades, don't take this teaching to judge the Jews, but look at your own heart. And it, it, is there a need of a Purim miracle in me where God delivers me from something? Sometimes there's habits and behaviors that have plagued us as believers for our life. So that is our webinar for today. Do continue to pray for us. 
If the Lord lays on your heart, do contribute to our special projects to help the Jews in this needy situation. Nicole gave us a wonderful update of what we're able to do currently. And we look forward to seeing you next week in our global prayer gathering and in next Thursday seminar on another fascinating topic. Thank you and the shalom, the peace of God be upon you from Jerusalem. Goodbye. Thank you for joining us today. We'll see you next Thursday at 4 p.m. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on our social media pages for more exclusive ICJ content.